0: Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Bach's boundless abundance, the making of a musical genius, by Jeremy Begby. What makes a genius different? I used to think a genius was someone who excelled at everything, with an IQ of around 150. Whatever a genius does will be brilliant. In fact, most of the people we call geniuses excel at just one main thing, and it's how they excel at that that makes them different. The German composer Johann Sebastian Bach is a good example. In all sorts of ways, Bach was unexceptional. He didn't lead an especially dramatic life. He was a working musician, with a stint as a court musician, and much longer stints as a church music director, latterly in Leipzig. In this respect, there were many like him at the time. He travelled very little. Socially, he was fairly conventional and conformist for his day, certainly not the sort to rock any political boats. He produced a huge quantity of music, certainly, but then so did many of his contemporaries. He was a Lutheran Christian, that is, he belonged to a wing of Christianity that followed the teachings of Martin Luther, the reformer who ignited the Protestant Reformation. As a Lutheran, he was devout, but not exceptionally so for this time. He knew his Bible well, but so did hundreds of others in his day. He wasn't a great writer of words. Like many musicians, he could be grumpy. He didn't suffer fools gladly and was a hard taskmaster. He hated it when people tried to get out of doing hard work. He was not particularly well-known during his lifetime, certainly not an international celebrity. In short, if we had met him socially, I doubt if we would have found it a memorable experience. And yet... He changed the face of Western music, not simply classical music, but every musical style from concert to folk, jazz to bebop, early pop, Lennon and McCartney were huge fans, to hard rock. Nothing was the same after Bach. Over the last 300 years, there is hardly a single musician who has not been impacted by him in one way or another, even if they might not know it. So. In what does Bach excel? Why is he the most revered musician in history? People answer this in different ways, but for me, it comes down to something very simple. He turns the Christian life into sound to a degree no one before or after has come close to matching. This is not to say he is always preaching at you. He does proclaim, certainly. But the musical sounds he generates do not generally send messages. Rather, they help you feel what it's like to live in this world and understand the world as a Christian. Take, for example, his mammoth masterpiece that tells the story of the suffering and death of Jesus, as told by Matthew in the New Testament, the St. Matthew Passion. Right from the start, you do not simply hear about or observe the drama, you're taken inside it. In the opening scene, Jesus trudges on the Via Dolorosa to his crucifixion. Strings, basses and cellos pound away on one note in a faltering, dragging rhythm. Other instruments tug away from each other in fierce dissonance. All this is in a dark minor key. We are made to feel in our bodies the slow, lumbering, doom-laden march of this man to his execution. But that is not all. On top of this, two choirs enter, singing to each other. The one asks puzzled questions, who is this? And the other replies, by unfolding the meaning of this strange procession. The condemned man is carrying the weight of the world's human guilt. Over this, a third choir enters, usually a boy choir in today's performances, These are the singers of the heavenly Jerusalem, far above the action, intoning an ancient hymn, Lamb of God. Fittingly, they sing in a secular rhythm, in a positive major key. Here, God is winning back, healing his broken world, our world. Bach piles all these layers on top of each other, so we hear them all at once. Something only music can pull off. It is impossible with words alone. We trudge with Jesus as he identifies with us at our worst. Yet at the same time, we are surrounded by an eternal assurance that here God is doing his climactic work. Another especially pointed example of Bach's inside view comes when Bach tackles one of the most famous scenes in Matthew's story. Peter, supposedly Jesus' most loyal follower, has just publicly denied he even knew him. And this, despite pledges of unswerving loyalty. He wretches inside as his beloved leader is led away to his trial and death. A tenor soloist sings Matthew's simple sentence, And Peter went out and wept bitterly. That is about as terse as you can get. But Bach strings these words out over a tortured, tormented melody, close to the sound of a person wailing with grief. When we reach the word out, as in Peter went out, Bach has the tenor sing a top B, the highest note he sings in the entire work. A musical going out is linked to a physical and metaphorical going out. and All this happens over the most anguished, dissonant, harsh harmony. It's painful to listen to, which is, of course, the point. Again, Bach is not depicting something at a distance. He doesn't even want us to feel sorry for Peter, for this is not about someone else. It's about us. He wants us to feel something on the inside, that we have betrayed the one who, more than anyone else, has been prepared to die for us two glimpses of a Christian mind in action. But just as remarkable is what Bach can do without any words at all. He gave birth to hundreds of instrumental pieces, and he seems to have believed these were just as important as his vocal works. That's because he believed musical notes, melodies, chords, motifs, riffs, harmonies, carried their own power to help us sense what it feels like to live in a world brought into being by the Christian God, a lot of Bach's music for instruments comes alive when heard in this light. It is as if we are being invited to listen to a cosmos in sound. A towering example is his famous Chacon in the Pastor in D minor for solo violin. Most scholars recognize that more than any other musician before or since, Bach knows how to get the most out of the least from utterly unpromising motifs, unremarkable clusters of notes, he can weave sounds of astonishing richness. In this piece, he weaves 15 minutes of music from a simple four-bar chord pattern, a seemingly endless series of variations of every mood and colour. The impression is of an infinity of possibilities, a boundless abundance, even when he does eventually draw things to a close, as many scholars have noticed, we are left with the impression this could have gone on ad infinitum. Very much the same applies to the even longer Goldberg variations for keyboard, whose breathtaking overflow is evoked well in words from the distinguished Bach scholar John Bart. There is something utterly radical in the way that Bach's uncompromising exploration of musical possibility opens up potentials that seem to multiply as soon as the music begins. By the joining up of the links in a seemingly closed universe of musical mechanism, a sense of infinity seems unwittingly to be evoked. Bach is, in effect, giving us a musical imagination of something basic to Christian faith. That we live in a world in which the creator God is constantly at work drawing a potentially infinite number of options out of even the most unpromising material. Which, of course, we should take to include ourselves, ordinary, frail and stumbling human beings. Not only that, Bach invites us to hear the interweaving of radical consistency and radical openness. Listen to a minute or two of the Chaconne and press pause at almost any point, It's very hard to predict what will happen next, even if you know the style well. And yet, what does happen makes perfect sense. In other words, it sounds as if it's being improvised. This is why jazz musicians are so intrigued by Bach's music. There is nothing deterministic about it. We're not inside a machine or something that must unfold in the way it does. And yet it is anything but arbitrary or absurd-sounding. Bach seems to have sensed what many contemporary physicists will confirm. We don't live in a fixed universe in which the future is simply the unwinding of the past. And yet the world has a regularity to it, a dependability. It makes sense. In Bach's imagination, as in the Bible itself, God is not arbitrary or fickle. God is the improviser, we might say, faithful and surprising at the same time. Finally, we mention one other striking feature of Bach's sound world that is hard to miss. The way it can encompass extreme joy and extreme pain. Bach was no stranger to grief and death. Both his parents died before he was 10 years old. He fathered 20 children, but seven of those died immediately after birth or in infancy. He was out of town when his first wife, Maria Barbara, died. He was never able to say his farewells. To hear Bach at his most dissonant, taking us to the very edge of coherence, listen to Variation 25 from the Goldberg Variations. We do not know if he was thinking of the crucifixion of Jesus here. He openly tackled this theme elsewhere in music of extraordinary sorrow. But in this piece, he plumbs such dark depths, it is hard to believe there is no connection at all. For Lutherans, the death of Jesus was the very centre of God's engagement with the world, the point where God identified most intensely with us in our darkest depths. And yet, even in pieces of this kind, as Bach scholars have often noted, and as we have hinted above, Bach will often overreach, spill out of the parameters he sets for himself. The ecstasy you will hear in the Et Resurrexit of the Mass in B minor is a good example, where the raising of the crucified Jesus from the dead is translated into music that might well be called hyper-energetic. Again, Bach doesn't allow us to observe and contemplate things from a safe distance, He's trying to catch us up into a life that, by its very nature, is uncontainable. As with so much of Bach's music, dance is the fundamental dynamic here. It is hard to keep still when surrounded by the cascading momentum. With a twinkle in his eye, he adds an orchestral postlude that, by conventions of his time, was wholly unnecessary, gratuitous, excessive. A fitting testimony... To the superabundant character of what he believed happened on Easter Day. In the midst of a society surrounded by the brute physical reality of death, including the deaths of members of his own family, Bach carries us into an overspill of energy that pulls against the downward, contracting running down of the physical world, evoking a running up in his imagination, the life of the resurrection body to come. Bed Rotting and an Old Art of Rest by Leanne Howard-Dace There's a trend doing the rounds on TikTok which is attracting a fair amount of comment. The practice of taking at least a day in bed to recuperate when you're running low on energy. Gen Z are with characteristic directness calling it bed rotting. At first, this sounds like nothing new. People have been taking to their bed for centuries. Gen X might have called it vegging out. Millennials would call it a duvet day. From the discourse that sprung up about bed rotting, though, it seems like some bigger questions are being explored around this trend. Firstly, Gen Z are reclaiming the need to stay in bed by branding it as a form of self-care. This picks up on some broader well-being trends online, where people are trying to decouple their sense of worth from their productivity this train of thought picked up steam during the covid-19 pandemic and seems to continue to be something people are wrestling with i rather like the visceral nature of the phrase bed rotting and i'm sure that whichever generational cohort we fall into we can all relate to the occasional need to totally switch off to refresh and recalibrate however as others are pointing out A second consideration is whether getting to the point of needing a day to rot in bed is really a good approach to self-care. Or would more preventative measures be the better way to care for yourself? Some commentators on TikTok have suggested that a combination of other gentle activities would actually be better at delivering the desired results than lounging in bed alone. Dr. Sandra Dalton-Smith suggests in her book Sacred Rest that there are seven types of rest, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, sensory, social and creative. Whilst bed rotting provides perhaps three or four of these types of rest, it may not provide the long-term refreshment sought if it doesn't nurture the other parts of us as well. While framing this extreme need for rest as self-care may give people permission to stop and reduce the stigma of doing nothing, it also puts the onus on the individual. I think the risk of self-care narratives in general is precisely in the focus they put on the self. While it can be healthy and empowering to take action to improve your well-being, it also draws attention away from the societal systems and structures that are contributing to everyone feeling so exhausted all the time. Should we all just be expected to mindfulness our way out of a mental health crisis, or yoga our way out of chronic pain? Or should we be looking more widely at what is going on in the world? This tension between taking responsibility for our own well-being, but also reflecting on how I relate to the wider concepts, of work, productivity and success, is a very live, everyday issue for me. I have fibromyalgia, a chronic health condition characterised by fatigue and widespread muscular pain. Whilst conventional medicine gives some relief, I have to manage my energy levels very closely and intentionally pace myself to avoid my symptoms flaring up, though sometimes it is out of my control. Unfortunately, if I were to let myself get to the point of desperately needing to go and bed rot, it might take me a week or two to fully recover. I have to resist the urge to say yes to every invite and make sure I have a balance of work, rest and play in each week. This is helped by the privilege of being able to schedule my work around my own needs. It would certainly be much harder if I was tied to a very strict working pattern. In a way, it's like I have an early warning system for burnout and I've become very attuned to fluctuations in my mood, energy or pain levels that might indicate the equilibrium is off. As part of my energy management strategies, I've also found that the ancient practice of Sabbath from the Judeo-Christian tradition has helped me to both take regular time to rest and to remind myself that I'm a human being. Not a human doing. In Genesis, the opening poem of the Hebrew Scriptures, we hear that after six days of hard work creating the universe, God rested on the seventh day. For thousands of years, Jews and Christians have attempted to learn from this and incorporate a day of rest into each week. The practice also exists in Islam. The way this plays out in people's lives ranges from very strict observance to more loosely held rules and rituals. However you approach it, there is much to be learned from this ageless wisdom. I initially began practising Sabbath myself when I went freelance and realised how easily I could end up working seven days a week if I didn't pay attention. This was six months or so before the first COVID-19 lockdown in the UK, and I was extremely grateful to have established this habit in my life when that occurred. For me, Sabbath isn't just ensuring I'm squeezing rest into each week, but also creating rhythm. It punctuates my week and gives everything else breathing space. Each Sunday, I try to do as little as possible, and particularly to disconnect from digital channels, because I know they often take more energy than they give me. In the ruthless elimination of hurry, John Mark Comer helpfully suggests two simple criteria to decide whether something is permissible on the Sabbath. Is it rest or worship? If it's not one of those two things, then it can wait. For me, worship usually means going to church, but for you that could be something else that helps you connect to something bigger than yourself and experience a sense of wonder. Perhaps immersing yourself in nature, or engaging with an awe-inspiring work of art. Another helpful piece of advice about Sabbath I heard from Annie F. Downs on Instagram. If you work with your hands, Sabbath with your mind. If you work with your mind, Sabbath with your hands. Someone who spends most of my working week creating content on a computer, this is a useful reminder not just to read and journal on my Sabbath, but to swim crochet or cook as well. Lastly, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This reminds me to do Sabbath in a way that is life-giving for me, even if that looks different to what works for others. These guidelines have helped me establish a practice of Sabbath which provides clarity and routine whilst being expansive enough to allow me to give myself whichever type of rest I need at a given time. Occasionally I do just bed rot, but usually I do things that restore me and bring me joy, whether that's taking a walk or cycle, if I have the energy, or simply taking my lunch to the beach. Of course, I'm not always perfect in the way I Sabbath, that's why it's called a practice. But I do notice I flag later in the week if I've skipped it. So even if I occasionally switch the day or bend one of my rules for a practical reason, I keep coming back to it. If you don't already, I really encourage you to try the routine of Sabbath for yourself. Pick a day of the week that works for you. Put some boundaries in place. Try it for a few weeks and adjust accordingly. Treat it as an experiment, a gift to yourself Perhaps is a little way to opt out of the madness of modern life for a beat, and by all means, bed rot if you need to. As Brene Brown says, it takes courage to say yes to rest and play in a culture where exhaustion is seen as a status symbol. Understanding authority. From Rome to Beijing by K.K. Is the West Christian and China Confucianist, or is the West secular and China communist? Binary understanding of our world in conventional terms, such as East versus West, or the sacred-secular divide, is superficial and confusing. Given the biases, divisiveness, and, at times, toxic geopolitical reality today, The topic of government and Christianity in China today is more complex than meets the eye. A much better option is a meaningful cross-cultural perspective that enables constructive conversation while honouring different contexts and nuanced understandings. Does it surprise you that an atheist and at times anti-religion party state, China is the world's largest Bible printer? Christianity in China has existed since the 7th century, when the Syrian Church of the East had rigorous cultural, religious and commercial exchanges with many nations, as far as those in East Asia. Recently, the regime in China has become concerned about the growth of the Christian population that might be outnumbering the party's members. There has been the suppression of believers, burning of crosses and demolition of churches across the country. The Communist Party eliminated the State Administration for Religious Affairs in 2018 and the United Front Work Department of the Communist Party now has direct control on all religions. Churches in China exist in a harsh reality similar to that of first century Roman Empire so they inevitably find the teaching of St Paul in the Bible to be of great interest. Chinese Christians have long had nuanced responses to their government. The house church remains committed to love Christ only, rendering to God the things that are God's, and only then would they render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The separation of religion and government position, preservation of religious freedom from government intrusion, is considered to be politically subversive to the authoritarian rule of the party. Therefore, The house churches have long distanced themselves from politics, while acknowledging that their Christian behaviour, such as loving their neighbour as a religious duty, is the best politics for nation-building. By contrast, the three self-patriotic churches, and also the current Vatican-China agreement on the appointment of Chinese bishops, do not find a serious discrepancy in loving Christ and the communist state. They seek to work with the government primarily in the matter of social welfare, but have a range of mixed views on the scope of combining patriotism with Christian belief. To maintain no or minimum separation of government and religion is becoming more and more challenging as the government centralises its control of all aspects of national and personal lives. Christians in China are asking harder questions than those in churches outside China. Can a Christian church adopt a state ideology or become a member of the Communist Party to support Christian identity and social harmony in China? Are church attendance and participating in church activities politically subversive? And what does it mean to say that Jesus is Lord in that land? I remember teaching at Peking University and seeing the students debate a scenario in the Bible in which the Thessalonian crowd was charging the Apostle Paul and his colleague Silas for contradicting the decree of Caesar for saying that there is another king named Jesus. Paul was surely preaching neither about insurrection nor subversion of the Roman Empire. However, Roman audiences then and Chinese crowd or government today are more likely to have perceived the belief that Jesus as Lord as a political threat. Case in point concerns Wang Yi, the pastor of the early Rain Church in the city of Chengdu, who preached Jesus as the Lord of Lords, thus implying that the current political ruler is subsumed under Jesus Christ. Yi was sentenced to nine years in prison in 2018 for inciting subversion of state power. Cardinal Joseph Zen, a 90-year-old Catholic bishop in Hong Kong, was arrested in 2022 for criticising the Vatican's unwise deal with China and for being an advocate of democracy in Hong Kong. Christians in Hong Kong are treading similar water regarding their religious faith, clashing with the politicised perception of such faith as treason, such as in the Umbrella Movement or the Occupy Central with Love and Peace, that protest the will of the Chinese communist rule in Hong Kong. Using the teaching of St Paul in his letter to early Christians in Rome as a resource, the Chinese argued that he encourages Roman Christians to critically reflect on government power so as to bring all nations to obedience of God's justice. The popular reading of Paul as asking Roman Christians to be subjected to the governing authorities For the reason that for there is no authority except from god is a weak english translation to the chinese church paul admonishes roman christians to subject themselves to the governing authorities and that is not a passive submission but a voluntary involvement as good citizens in the process of bringing about change to their government the chinese church sees that Paul challenges government politics first by stating the principle that it is not an authority if not from God, i.e. unless from God. In other words, there may be some governing authorities that are not appointed by God, thus begging the question, how does one know if governing authorities are from God or not from God? seems that Paul is not concerned about whether a government or the head of state is Christian or not. What matters to Paul is not what the government says, but the way the government or the head of state acts in accordance to the following principles. Rulers are not to terrorise good conducts and good citizens. The rule of law is meant to approve the good doers and punish the evil doers. Rulers are ministers of God for the common good of the people even though Roman Empire has its mythic origin from Jupiter, a Roman god. Rulers are worship leaders of God, as they administer collected taxes not for their own concentration of power, but for the dignity and flourishing of the citizens, thus realising God's compassionate justice on earth, promoting the welfare of the city. Churches outside China read Paul on government politics based on their assumed cultural context of Christian values. Yet the Chinese church's courage and humility to ask hard questions for themselves is an enlightening conversation. For those outside China, a cross-cultural and global understanding of government and religion can shed light on the promotion of a robust public life. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from seen and unseen aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.